So what do you do when a storm is coming? What's your prep? Maybe you're like many people and you run to the store and, and buy milk. I was at the store this week and I heard this really nice guy come out of the back and he told the lady, he said, I'm sorry, there's no milk back there either. And she just had this crushed look on her face. You run out and get the milk and you run out and get the, the bottled water and the soup and the bread and the batteries. Other people, they go buy generators and, and make sure all the cars are, are filled up with gas. If you own a business, especially if you own a business in a place where there might be uh, strong winds, then what you would do is, is board up your business, Right? I was reading this week that uh, the Vindu Hotel in historic downtown Charleston, uh, it's an art hotel. And the art director, once they boarded everything up, painted some really nice waves on the boards. So instead of, you know, a message that says, go away, it just made it kind of pretty. So when it comes to storm preparation, sometimes there is the, the practical of getting the milk and bread. I guess every now and then there's the creative of waves on boards on the side of windows. But there's also the critical preparation, right? I have been uh, just so thoroughly impressed, as always, with how God has graced our state with so many incredible leaders. Uh, we have walked through so many things in the last few years, and our leaders have been exemplary in pulling us together and leading us well. And we've seen that even this week. Uh, we have uh, agencies, whether it's a government agency, whether it's law enforcement or military, it, it might be a civic group, it might even be a, a local business, uh, utility companies, medical professionals. We have, we have all kind of people that are always prepared and they stay prepared for, for critical needs in the community. And then there's ministries, ministries like Samaritan's Purse, ministries like our own South Carolina Baptist disaster relief teams that, that are always prepared with food and, and supplies and, and basic necessities to help people when they need it the most. Bob Buckley, a Fox Channel aide in North Carolina, went to the hardest hit area from the hurricane this week, and this was part of his report. Your home is gone, you're surrounded by water, but you can't drink any of it. Hundreds of people around you are dead, some likely your friends and family. This is Haiti after Hurricane Matthew. And he says this, And it is to those kinds of places that Franklin Graham's Samaritan's Purse Ministry has quietly flown to do what they can to bring some much-needed supplies and a little hope to the people there. A little hope. That's always needed, right? A little hope. From Florida to Georgia to South Carolina, North Carolina, these coastal communities have been wiped out. These people are going to need relief, and they're going to need some hope in the months to come. And by all means, when we consider that the, the death toll has now been numbered at at least 877 people in Haiti, the people of Haiti are going to need relief, and they're going to need a lot of hope. In fact, they're desperate for hope. So we pray, and, and we give, and we go. But what if there was a way to have hope before the storm even showed up? What if there was a way to, to have hope before the storm even arrived? And I'm not just talking about storms that, that have hurricane force wind. I'm talking about all the different kind of storms we have in life. The storms that, that blow into your marriage. The storms that blow into your mind. The storms that, that blow into your money. The storms at, at home and at work and at school, the, the storms maybe even at church, the storms at the hospital, the storms in all the other places that we do life. And even beyond those, what if there was hope that could actually calm the raging storm in your soul? 
Well, the truth is there is hope like that. What kind of hope is that? What kind of hope can have that kind of impact to not just meet our needs on this earth, but to actually meet the needs of our soul? Well, we're going to look at the first church. And hopefully looking at the first church, they're going to help us find an answer to what this hope is all about. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the very last part of the verse. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord was adding saved people to the church. He wasn't just adding people, he was adding saved people to the church. He wasn't just adding people to the church that, that were in the community, they were really nice and they liked the building and they liked the preaching and they liked the music and they thought the church had good youth and children's programs. No, he was adding people into the church who were spiritually dead, but now they were spiritually alive. What does that mean? Well, physiologically, something that is dead cannot bring itself back to light, back to life. I mean, for instance, if, if I just pass out right now and somebody comes up and they check and I don't have a pulse, it would be pretty weird if I suddenly whistled like I was whistling for Trigger, my horse, which I don't have a horse named Trigger, but, but it would be weird if with no pulse I suddenly whistled and magically, like in a Disney movie, the defibrillator on the back hall suddenly just came out of the box and floated through the air and, and came into the sanctuary and hooked up the paddles and brought me back to life. That would be weird because that wouldn't happen. You see, in order for somebody to bring they'd have to go get the defibrillator, bring it back in here, somebody would have to put it on me, and then they would have to bring me back to life. And, and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe my body is too far gone to be brought back to life. But the reality is there is no way that if I have no pulse that I can magically bring myself back to life. Well, the same is true spiritually. If you are spiritually dead, you can't bring life to your soul. So, how would you know if you're spiritually dead? Well, the initial math is really easy. One out of every one person is spiritually dead. Easy math, right? You don't even have to think about it. So, so how do I know that? Where is that coming from? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So sin is the cause of spiritual death. But you might say, well, well what's sin? Well, in simple terms, sin is rebelling against God, rebelling against God and his ways. So how do you know if you've sinned? Well, again, I have some really easy math for you. Paul said to the Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Easy math, right? For all have sinned. So every single person who is alive, every single person who's ever lived, every single person who is yet to be born has or will sin. Billy Graham put it this way. God is perfect, and anything we do that falls short of his perfection is sin. Okay? Show of hands. Anybody perfect this morning? <laughs> Anybody never done anything wrong? I'm always waiting for a middle schooler in the back to raise their hand at that point. Yeah, we, we're not perfect, right? We, we, we haven't done anything perfectly. So the reality is we've, we've fallen short. So that lack of perfection, that, that falling short, that sin gives way to spiritual death. And so what does that look like in, in real life? Well, let me see if I can kind of give a mild example here. Uh, I was reading this week about a dad that had an interesting scenario with his two young children. 
it seems that his little son and his little daughter were, were running down the hallway. And undoubtedly, sis wasn't running fast enough. And so brother moved her out of the way so that he could run a little faster down the hall. So she got hurt. He got sent to his room. So the dad goes in a little later to talk to the little boy. And this is what the little boy says. I'm stupid. I never make good decisions. I always do the wrong thing. She's always so nice to me and I always hurt her, but I can't help it. Any parents ever heard a line like that? Now the dad could have said this. Hey, buddy, no big deal. Hey, you know what? Hey, nobody's perfect. Look, everybody that gets their head slammed into a doorknob bleeds. It's all right. Look, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Look, look, it's, it's okay. Just do better next time. But that's not what he said. He simply and graciously reminded his son that he was a sinner. The father was Mike McGarry. He's a youth pastor up in Massachusetts. He says this about sin. Our sinful nature has corrupted, though not eradicated, the image of God within us. We desire self-glory more than God's glory. And then he goes on to say this. Listen to this description. See if you can make a connection with this. We want to control more than to serve. We prefer pleasure to sacrifice. We listen to ourselves more than we listen to God. Any of that sound familiar, or is it just me? Now, see, sin is is full of self-focused rebellion. And that rebellion, it might play out being bold. You You might be boldly rebellious, or you might be casually rebellious, or you might even be apathetically rebellious. I don't know if apathetically is a word. My English teachers will correct me later. But, but you may be bold, you may be casual, you may be apathetic. But rebellion is still rebellion. It's still there. It's still real. But you might say, ah, I don't know. I don't remember rebelling against God. I mean, I was a pretty good kid. I mean, I made good grades. I said yes, ma'am, and no man to mom and dad. I took the trash out without being asked. I don't, I don't, I don't really remember being rebellious against God. Okay, fine. Maybe you don't remember being rebellious against God. But remember the definition of sin, according to the Scripture, is falling short of the glory of God. So if you can't remember any rebellion, are you really ready to say that you've never had a thought or an action that wasn't perfectly matched up with the perfection of God? I'm thinking probably not. You know, even this little boy, I mean, even... Even if he doesn't remember moving his sister in the hallway, it still happened. I mean, if he's little enough, he he may not remember. I mean, from time to time, we'll share stories about our kids. They don't remember things that they did when they were little. So even if he doesn't remember, it still happened. The rebellion still happened against God and against his ways. And that rebellion, that lack of perfection, that falling short, it gives way to spiritual death. So the question is, is there any way to change the math? If one out of every one person is spiritually dead, then is there any way for that to change? Can we change that statistic? Well, yes, there is a way to change that. I was reading about another dad this week, and before his son was born, someone stopped by and gave him a message. And the message went a little bit like this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. 
So an angel of the Lord came to Joseph and he said, Jesus was going to save people from their sins. That is a ginormous announcement. That is a huge message. Jesus is going to save people from their sin, from their lack of perfection, from falling short, from their rebellion, from being spiritually dead. Jesus was going to change that. That's the hope we're talking about. I loved Steve's prayer earlier. I hope you dialed in on it. God, thank you for the sun. The reminder that one day we will wake up with no more suffering. That's an amazing prayer. Jesus came to to save and to rescue. He is the hope that we're looking for. The hope that is found in Jesus Christ. It's real, it's deep, it's satisfying, it's lasting. It's good before the storm, it's good during the storm, and it's good after the storm because it's all connected to Jesus. And the message is so unbelievably simple. It's not hard. We don't have to figure it out. It can all be boiled down into two words, and that's Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus the Christ, he meets your most critical need in life. Listen, today your most critical need on this earth might be food and shelter and medicine, but that's not your most critical need. Your most critical need is is not of this earth. Your most critical need is to be spiritually alive. Your most critical need is to be spiritually alive alive. So how do you know if you're spiritually alive or not? John Newton in the favorite hymn, Amazing Grace, put it pretty simply, right? He said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Paul put it this way to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're spiritually alive? Well, have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Have you seen that light? Are you daily striving and fighting to believe in and trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus Christ as your greatest and ultimate hope and salvation? Do you believe that that Jesus Christ is God's one and only Savior that was born in a stable in Bethlehem and 33 years later voluntarily sacrificed himself on a cross for the penalty of your sin? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your most defining hope today and will be your most defining hope when you breathe your last breath. That's spiritual life. John Piper writes this, If you see Jesus as supremely beautiful and desirable so that you embrace him for the Savior he is, God has healed your blindness. Love that. So do you See Jesus as supremely beautiful and desirable? Have you embraced him as as God's one and only Savior? Do you have moments when you're sitting in the pew at church or you're sitting in traffic on I-26 or you're sitting in a hospital room and you just have that moment where you just stop and you just go, "I, I, I once was blind, but now I see. God has healed my spiritual blindness. Ever have moments like that? If so, 
then enjoy the hope that you have in Jesus. This hope is, is not a one-time deal. This hope is not just for a moment. This hope is, is real. It's, it's deep. It's lasting. Don't forget what we just sang just a few moments ago. Fear not. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will still give you aid. I will not desert you to your foes. I will never forsake you. Never, no, never, no, never. There is fantastic hope in that. That kind of hope is for every single storm of your life. Everyone. If you're not a Christian, if, if your heart would tell you that, that you know you are spiritually dead, I want you to know that, that we know and realize we can't force you to believe in the Bible. We can't force you to believe in the truth about Jesus. And if you've never been to a church before, this is your first time in church, then, then I want you to know we are not trying to push our religion on you, and we're not trying to give you a guilt trip. It, it's just, here's the thing. See, we, we sing and we pray and we preach these things because the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus has so captured our hearts that we are compelled by love to hope that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would capture your heart and that you would be rescued, that you would be delivered, that you would no longer fall short, that your rebellion would be forgiven and that you would find the freedom that can only come with being right with God. In other words, what we're saying is, is Jesus saves we're saying it graciously and we're saying emphatically that Jesus is the only one that saves. And we plead with you to come to him and no longer be lost and blind, but to be found and to see. That's what was happening in the first church. The first church had people that were coming into it. The, the Lord was adding people that had been captured by the love and the hope and the authority and the power and the salvation of Jesus. The Lord was not adding people to a lazy boy in the den. <laughs> he wasn't adding people to the kitchen table on Sunday morning to you know, listen to the, the TV preacher with the, with the great hair and the great smile and the great sales pitch, telling them that, hey, a donation of any amount will be the seed of faith money for your new washer and dryer that you've been wanting for so long. No, that's, that's not what God was saving people into. He was adding people to a local group of people. So he was adding safe people to a local group of safe people and all of them gathered and scattered for the purpose of the gospel. He saved them into the church. I mean, can you imagine how exciting this must have been? That these people who lived under these rules, you ever lived under a rule in a, in a house or at work and you feel like you can't ever get anything right? Can you imagine that being your spiritual life? I haven't done enough today. I haven't checked enough things off the list. And all of a sudden, here comes this man who rescues and redeems and forgives. And all of a sudden, you're no longer blind, but you see. Can you imagine how excited they must have been, these, these new believers in this first church? And can you imagine that a, a few months after that, that you'd be talking to one of them, and they would say, yeah, I'm not going to church anymore. 
Yeah, I, I just can't go with it anymore. You know, Eunice, Eunice hurt my feelings, you know. She didn't like my ideas for the curtains in the prayer room, and I, I just can't go back. I just can't do it. Or I, I just can't go to church anymore. You know, I, I, that's not my kind of music. That's not the songs I grew up with. I can't sing those songs. Or, you know what, I just can't go to church anymore because those songs are not my songs. Man, I, I want some new songs. I want some songs that really help me jam out, man. I can't go to that church because they don't give me my kind of music. Or can you imagine them saying, you know, I'm not going to church because you know, they, they, won't, they won't elect me a deacon, you know. Or they, they won't let me teach Sunday school. They, they won't let me do anything. I, I'm not going to that church. Or, or somebody said, I'm not going to the church. That pastor, man, he just don't care about anybody. He didn't even call me after I had my cavity filled. Man, he didn't even stop by or do anything. I mean, can you imagine any of that happening? I, I would say no. <laughs> you see, there, there are some reasons to leave a church. Really, there are. And there's some good reasons. But, but they need to be reasons that are prayerfully and well thought out and, and connected some way to the truth of the Bible. I love what Spurgeon says. <laughs> As only Spurgeon could say this. If you wait for a perfect church, you must wait until you get to heaven. And even if you could find a perfect church on earth, I'm sure they would not admit you to their fellowship. For you yourself are not perfect. <laughs> Look, the first church, man, they were messy. They were full of sinners, just like this one. <laughs> messy and full of sinners. But you know what they had? They had this passionate, prayerful desire to keep fixing their attention and their affection on Jesus. That defined who they were. David Lukabil is a youth pastor in Alabama. He writes this about the church. The world around us longs for community and the false sense of connectedness created by Twitter and Facebook won't fill the void. Did you catch that? The false sense of connectedness. We need robust life-on-life, in-the-trenches community. And he says this, God didn't merely text us after all. He came, he walked with us, he wept with us, he rejoiced with us, he loved us in spite of ourselves. If we're embodying this self-giving posture in our churches, then it'll draw the lonely world to us like a magnet. That good. Saved people loving their Savior together is like a magnet. People who realize they were spiritually dead and have been brought to life spiritually and they just can't get over it, that's like a magnet. See, that's why we keep meeting together on Sundays and on Wednesdays and, and, and in small groups, on pontoon boats or, or in backyard swimming pools, at the zoo, at the coffee house, at restaurants. We keep meeting together to kind of pinch ourselves and keep finding ways to remind each other, this happened. We once were blind, but, but now we see. And we together keep trying to help each other see. In the middle of the storms of life, we are saved. We're saved. And that matters. That, that means something. Let me share an interesting view of this. Daniel Darling is the Vice President of Communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Last month he was writing about making sure that you don't let non-Christians plan your worship service. That, that you don't plan the worship service in ways that is appealing to non-Christians. And I might add to that, you don't plan the worship service in a way that's appealing to Christians. 
You plan the worship service in a way that brings maximum attention to Jesus Christ. That's, that's how you plan. But he was talking and he was writing about how a friend of his invited him to go to a college football game with him. This friend had, had gone to this school, to this college. He was a huge, gigantic fan. And Darling writes about his experience. He says, It struck me as I sat in his team section that they didn't really care how their particular rituals affected me, an outsider. They were simply proud of their team and wanted everyone, including me, to know it. That wasn't offensive. It was attractive. It's attractive like, like a magnet. Then he goes on. The loyal fan base embraced me, but they didn't allow me to determine their game day liturgy. The band didn't play music more amenable to my preferences. The cheerleaders didn't craft a generic routine I might understand. The fans didn't wear generic clothing so I would fit in. And then he points out that the same thing should be true for the church. And this is what he says. The seeker who enters the doors of our church should be welcomed, loved, and served. We should labor to declare the gospel to him in language he understands. But sidelining the rhythms of Christian worship communicates embarrassment about what we claim matters most. Wow. See, the early church, they were not embarrassed about what mattered most. They were spiritually dead, and now they were spiritually alive, and they were clear that that was the message. That was what they were excited about. They were saved people who were still excited about being saved by the Savior. That's a fun thought, right? They were saved people who were still excited about being saved by the Savior. They weren't embarrassed by that. It defined who they were. And they didn't let anything distract them from that one thing. And they were attractive to the lost world around them. And the Lord kept adding to their number. You know what all that sounds like? <laughs> it sounds really simple really uncluttered and really ordinary. The most extraordinary thing that could possibly happen to another human being. To be brought to life, to be born again, to be given spiritual life. All of that happened to them. And then as part of their normal, ordinary routine of life, they just never got over it. When you talk to them, their attitude even the way they worried about things. It was all connected to this notion that the Savior had saved them, that they had been given life. The gospel calls us to pray and to give and to go and to gather, and we can do all of those things. And so I, I plead with you and encourage you this week to, to look for ways to strategically pray for people. Not just pray in general, but, but strategically pray. And maybe those strategic prayers for one person or one family or one situation will drive you to go minister to that person or that situation. Maybe this week you need to give money to hurricane relief efforts. Maybe you do need to, to stop by a shelter and just check on people. Maybe you just need to make sure that you maintain good faithful involvement in the church. But, but all of us can, can pray and we can give and, and we can gather and we can go. But, but some of us, God is calling even beyond that. God's calling some of you this morning to go do that training, to be on the disaster relief teams. God might even be calling some of you to, to leave here and move to North Carolina and work with Samaritan's Purse full time. God might be calling some of you to leave your American life and go to the farthest corner of the world so that that group of people who's never heard the gospel might be able to sing the songs that we sang this morning one day. 
Whatever God is, is calling you to do in terms of go, as we go, let us go as people who are saved and we can't get over being saved by the Savior. Let us be saved people that are excited that we have been saved by the Savior. And why should we do that? Well, because all of our hope is connected to our Savior. All of our hope is is strategically connected to Jesus. And the authority and the power and the love and the majesty of Jesus Christ brings more than just a little hope into the storms of our lives. No, the hope that comes with Jesus is deep and it is satisfying and it is always and it is forever. That's the hope we need the most and that hope is found only in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just that that any of this even exists. God, thank you that we did not come this morning to to worship a statue that the deacons made. Thank you that we didn't have to come and and spread out around this room and and burn candles and incense, hoping that, that maybe something in the air might help our need. But we came this morning believing in the one who died to rescue us from our sin. And it is not a fairy tale. We come with the authority of the cross and the authority of Jesus. And God, we beg and we plead, would you help us to find hope in Jesus? There's so much hope there to be found. And so when the storms begin to rise, would our preparation be a reminder that we have been saved by the Savior. And in the middle of the storm, would you help our storm preparation in the middle of the winds to remember that we've been saved by the Savior. And when the storm is over and life seems to to get a little bit better before the next storm happens, let us stay in that mode of being unbelievably amazed and stunned that we've been saved by the Savior. Oh God, give us hope. In Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.